Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. You're listening to Buffalo Shots Podcast. Hello again and welcome to another Horror Shots podcast with me, Casey. Of course, this podcast is brought to you by the wonderful people over at morbidlybeautiful.com. Now, I've plugged them every week for the past three weeks, and that's for a good reason, because they are incredible and they sponsor the show. So definitely head over to Morbidly Beautiful and check out some great articles going up every single day, including one interview that just went up featuring Pollyanna McIntosh, who's a wonderful filmmaker and creative mind. So go read that. And also check out all the stuff they're doing for Pride. It's fantastic. There's a fundraiser out there on their Facebook page. I'm not sure if it's still active, but go check it out. It's never too late to donate. I think I might make that a slogan. It's never too late to donate, as I'm sure any donation to any cause is going to be appreciated at any point in time. So go check out what Morbidly Beautiful is doing right now. It's fantastic stuff. On a more personal note, it's housekeeping time, which happens at the start of every episode, as I'm sure you're well aware by now. Don't worry, I won't mention it again until next week. So if you do ever want to contact me, feel free to hit me up at horrorshots.com. Leave a comment on the Morbidly Beautiful page this goes up on as well. Email at horrorshotspodcast at gmail.com. Twitter at horrorshotspod. Instagram at Horror Shots Photography, Patreon at patreon.com slash horror shots, and I think that's it. Oh, Facebook. Facebook is the other one there that uh, you can check out at facebook.com slash horror shots. Feel free to leave comments on anything I put up there. I'm always open to any feedback, comments, suggestions, so on and so forth. Now, with this being Pride Month, and I did do the big Pride episode last week, it got me thinking about one thing in particular. My train of thought can be very, very strange sometimes, and somehow my thinking of the two-spirit of the Native American belief going into possession, going into ancient Mesopotamia, and all sorts of different things where people don't quite feel themselves, and that led me all the way to possessions and exorcisms. Now, most of us are aware of the films, starting back with The Exorcist and going into things like The Exorcism of Emily Rose or The Last Rites or any of those hundreds of Exorcist movies that were pretty much garbage after The Exorcist. Let's be honest here, nothing is ever going to live up to that film. It is most definitely one of my favorites of all time, and I think it is one of the best films of all time, not just in the horror genre. But that's beside the point, we're not talking about the film today. Well, not specifically anyway, but I am going to talk about exorcists, exorcisms, and possessions, as much as I can get in the next 20 minutes or so anyway. So we're all pretty familiar with the traditional form of exorcism, and that would be a Catholic priest going to somebody's house or somebody bringing somebody to a Catholic priest to have a demon exorcised from their body, correct? Well, that's not where it started. It's hard to pinpoint exactly where exorcism began, but anybody who listened to my cast on, I believe it was Lamash 2, 
will know that exorcisms and possessions have been around since ancient Mesopotamia. In fact, it was believed that all forms of sickness came from powerful spirits entering a person's body and attaching itself to a person. Assyrian tablets make reference to the use of incantations and prayers to the gods as well as direct challenges to the demons, which were believed to inflict every type of disease, both physical and psychological. Ancient Babylonian priests performed rituals by destroying a clay or wax image of the demon. In the Hindu religion, ancient texts known as the Vedas, which were composed around 1000 BC, refer to evil beings that interfere in the work of Hindu gods and harm the living. Accounts from ancient Persia dating back to around 600 BC offer evidence of exorcisms using prayer, ritual, and holy water by the religious leader Zoroaster, who was considered the first magician and who founded the religion Zoroasterianism. In Christianity, there are many references to Jesus performing exorcisms as well, and the ability to cast out evil spirits with a sign of a true disciple. In one well-known story, Jesus encountered a madman and commanded that the soul of the foul spirits leave him. The spirits then entered into a herd of pigs, which ran over a cliff and drowned in the waters below. Yes, there are jokes to be made, but that is for a different podcast. The Middle Ages, between 500 and 1500 AD, saw a revival of ancient superstition and demonology and mental illness was seen to be the result of evil possessions. The barbaric treatment of mental illness was primarily left to the clergy, who exercised patients through a variety of techniques which caused physical pain, such as scourging. Now, over the centuries, the rites of exorcism have included the use of prayer, commands, fumigations, holy water, hellbore, rue, salt, and roses. However, exorcisms have also attracted their fair share of skepticism. Many scientists believe that so-called demonic possession is simply a form of mental illness such as hysteria, mania, psychosis, Tourette syndrome, schizophrenia, or personality disorder. Skeptics claim that the illusion of exorcism works on people experiencing symptoms of possession is attributed to the power of suggestion, or even the placebo effect, which has also been used to explain the phenomena such as faith healing. Beliefs in spirit possessions have remained virtually unchanged since the beginning of civilization, and still exist to this day. But whether the possession by demonic forces is real or simply the result of medical or psychological imbalance is still hotly debated. Now, I do want to go over some of the more popular beliefs in this cast. Sure, we have Hinduism and a bunch of other religions such as Islam and Judaism and Taoism. They all have their own versions of possession and exorcists. But for the sake of time and for the sake of interest, we're going to stick to the Catholic Church and their version of what exorcism is to them. Now, in Catholic Christianity, exorcisms are performed in the name of Jesus Christ. A distinction is made between a formal exorcism, which can only be conducted by a priest during a baptism or with the permission of a bishop, and prayers of deliverance, which can be said by anyone. The Catholic rite for a formal exorcism is called a major exorcism, is given in section 11 of the Ritual Romanum, 
The ritual lists guidelines for conducting an exorcism and for determining when a formal exorcism is required. Priests are instructed to carefully determine that the nature of the affliction is not actually psychological or physical in nature before proceeding. In Catholic practice, the person performing the exorcism, known as an exorcist, is an ordained priest. The exorcist recites prayers according to the rubrics of the rite and may make use of religious materials such as icons and sacramentals. The exorcist invokes God, specifically the name of Jesus, as well as members of the Church Triumphant and the Archangel Michael to intervene with the exorcism. According to Catholic understanding, several weekly exorcisms over many years are sometimes required to expel a deeply entrenched demon. The Catechism of the Catholic Church also states, quote, When the Church asks publicly and authoritatively in the name of Jesus Christ that a person or object be protected against the power of the evil one and withdrawn from his dominion, it is called an exorcism. Though the Catholic Church revised the rite of exorcism in January of 1999, though the traditional rite of exorcism in Latin is allowed as an option, the ritual assumes that possessed persons retain their free will, though the demon may hold control over their physical body and involved prayers, blessings, and invocations with the use of the document, the exorcism, and certain supplications. Solomon exorcisms, according to the canon law of the church, can be exercised only by an ordained priest or higher, with the express permission of the local bishop, and only after a careful medical examination to exclude the possibility of mental illness. The Catholic Encyclopedia of 1908 enjoined, quote, superstition ought not to be confounded with religion. However, much their history may be interwoven, nor magic, however white it may be, with a legitimate religious rite. Things listed in the Roman ritual as being indicators of possible demonic possession include speaking foreign or ancient languages of which the possessed has no prior knowledge, supernatural abilities and strength, knowledge of hidden or remote things which the possessed has no way of knowing, an inversion to anything holy, and profuse blasphemy or sacrilege. And even though those are the guidelines, there is a little bit more to when an exorcism is needed. According to the Vatican guidelines issued in 1999, the person who claims to be possessed must be evaluated by doctors to rule out a mental or physical illness, as previously mentioned. Most reported cases do not require an exorcism because 20th century Catholic officials regard genuine demonic possession as an extremely rare phenomenon that is easily confounded with natural mental disturbances. Despite that fact, every diocese is required to have at least one priest that is an exorcist or is trained to perform exorcisms. As the demand for exorcisms has increased over the past few decades, the number of trained exorcists has also risen. In prior times, exorcists were kept fairly anonymous, and the performance of exorcisms remained a secret. Some exorcists attribute the rise in demand for exorcisms to the rise in drug abuse and violence, which leads to the suggestion that such things might work hand in hand. Many times a person just needs spiritual or medical help, especially if drugs or other addictions are present. The specially trained priests and medical professionals will be able to work together to address the patient and be able to determine what type of illness the patient is suffering from. 
After the need of the person has been determined, then the appropriate help will be met. In the circumstances of spiritual help, prayer may be offered, or the lying on of hands, or a counseling session may be prescribed. The exorcist might not perform an exorcism if he does not know the person as well. Now, there are also some more detailed signs as to what a demonic possession looks like. So things like the loss or lack of appetite, cutting, scratching, or biting of skin, a cold feeling in the room, unnatural bodily postures and change in the person's face and body, the possessed losing control of their normal personality and entering into a frenzy or rage and or attacking others, change in the person's voice, supernatural physical strength not subject to the person's build or age, speaking or understanding another language what they had never learned, knowledge of things that are distant or hidden, prediction of future events, levitation, expelling of objects or things, intense hatred and violent reactions towards all religious objects or items, or lastly, antipathy towards entering a church, speaking Jesus' name, or hearing scripture. So now that we know these signs and symptoms and qualifications of what classifies as a possession, what happens during an exorcism? Well, in the process of an exorcism, the person possessed may be restrained so that they do not harm themselves or any other person present. The exorcist then prays and commands for the demons to retreat. The Catholic priest recites certain prayers, the Our Father, Hail Mary, and the Athanasian Creed. Exorcists follow procedures listed in the Ritual of the Exorcism, revised by the Vatican in 1999. Season exorcists use the Rituale Romanum as a starting point, not always following the prescribed formula exactly. The Gale Encyclopedia of the Unusual and Unexplained described that an exorcism was a confrontation and not simply a prayer, and once it has begun, it has to finish no matter how long it takes. If the exorcist stops the right, then the demon will pursue him, which is why the process being finished is so essential. After the exorcism has been finished, the person possessed feels a kind of release of guilt and feels reborn and freed of sin. Not all exorcisms are successful the first time. It could take days, weeks, or months of constant prayer and exorcisms. Exorcisms have sort of become a little bit of an epidemic recently, with reports of over 1,700 by October of 2018 in Indianapolis alone. And that is apparently coming from the Archdiocese of Indianapolis. Now, the rise of possessions and claimed possessions has called for more exorcists. Whereas in 2011, there were about 15 known Catholic exorcists active. Today, or today at the time of this research, which I guess would have been around 2018, there were over 100. Now, there's no actual statistics to back this up. This is just sort of word of mouth. I don't want to get that out there. However, as I mentioned earlier, there has to be at least one trained exorcist for every diocese, which is a staggering amount if you think about it. Cases of possession have been accounted for, as we said, thousands of years. But there are some very important ones and some very well-documented ones, such as the exorcism of Roland Doe. Now, Roland Doe, or Robbie Mannheim, was a 14-year-old boy in 1949 
who was suffering from possession or supposed possession. Now, the origins of the claims go as such. In mid-1949, several newspaper articles printed anonymously reports of an alleged possession and exorcism. The source for these reports is thought to be the family's former pastor, Luther Miles Schulz. According to one account, a total of 48 people witnessed the exorcism, nine of them Jesuits. According to the author, Thomas B. Allen, Jesuit priest, Father Walter H. Halloran was one of the last surviving eyewitnesses of the events and participated in the exorcism as well. Allen wrote that a diary kept by the attending priest, Father Raymond J. Bishop, detailed the exorcism performed on the identity of Ronald Doe, a.k.a. Robbie. Speaking in 2013, Allen emphasized that definitive proof that the boy known only as Robbie was possessed by malevolent spirits is unattainable. Maybe he instead suffered from mental illness or sexual abuse or fabricated the entire experience. According to Allen, Halloran also expressed his skepticism about potential paranormal events before his death. When asked in an interview to make a statement on whether the boy had been possessed, Halloran responded saying, No, I can't go on record. I never made an absolute statement about the things because I didn't feel I was qualified. Now, according to Thomas B. Allen, after Aunt Harriet's death, the family experienced strange noises, furniture moving on its own accord, and ordinary objects such as vases began flying or levitating when the boy was nearby. The family turned to their Lutheran pastor, Miles Scholes, for help. Long interested in parapsychology, Scholes arranged for the boy to spend a night in his home in order to observe him. There's a priest joke in there, not gonna make it. When parapsychologist J.B. Rhine learned that Scholes claimed he witnessed household objects and furniture seemingly moving by themselves, Rhine, quote, wondered if Scholes unconsciously exaggerated some of the events, unquote. Scholes advised the boy's parents to see a Catholic priest. According to the traditional story, the boy then underwent a number of exorcisms. Edward Hughes, a Roman Catholic priest, conducted an exorcism on Roland at Georgetown University Hospital, which is a Jesuit institution. During the exorcism, the boy allegedly slipped one of his hands out of the restraints, broke a bedspring from under the mattress, and used it as an impromptu weapon, slashing the priest's arm and resulting in the exorcism ritual being halted. The family traveled to St. Louis, where Roland's cousin contacted one of the professors at the St. Louis University, who, in turn, spoke to William S. Bodern, an associate of College Church. Together, both priests visited Roland and his relative's home, where they allegedly observed a shaking bed, flying objects, the boy speaking in a guttural voice, and exhibiting an aversion to anything sacred. Bodern was granted permission from the archbishop to perform another exorcism. This exorcism took place at the Alexian Brothers Hospital in St. Louis, Missouri, which was later raised. Before the next exorcism ritual began, another priest, Walter Holleran, was called to the psychiatric wing of the hospital, where he was asked to assist Bodern. William Van Roo, a third Jesuit priest, was also there to assist. Halloran said that during the scene, words such as evil and hell, along with other various marks, appeared on the boy's body, allegedly... During the litany of the saints portion of the exorcism ritual, the boy's mattress began to shake. Moreover, Roland broke Halloran's nose during the process. Halloran told a newspaper that after the rite was over, 
the anonymous subject of the exorcism went on to lead a rather ordinary life. Now, if that sounds a little familiar, there's good reason for that. This was apparently the backstory, the inspiration, the muse, whatever you want to call it, for the book, The Exorcist, which later turned into the movie, The Exorcist. The other famous case I want to talk about today is that of Annalise Mitchell. That name may sound familiar, and here's why. Annalise Mitchell was a German woman who underwent a Catholic exorcism rite during the years before her death. In the end, she was diagnosed with epileptic psychosis, or temporal lobe epilepsy, and had a history of psychiatric treatment, which was overall not effective. When Mitchell was 16, she experienced a seizure and was diagnosed with psychosis caused by said temporal lobe epilepsy. Shortly thereafter, she was diagnosed with depression and was treated at a psychiatric hospital. By the time she was 20, she'd become intolerant to various religious objects and began to hear voices. Her condition worsened despite medication, and she became suicidal, also after displaying other symptoms for which she took medication as well. After taking psychiatric medication for five years failed to improve her symptoms, Mitchell and her family became convinced she was possessed by a demon. As a result, her family appealed to the Catholic Church for an exorcism. While rejected at first, after much hesitation, two priests got permission from the local bishop in 1975. Annalise Mitchell stopped eating food and died due to malnourishment and dehydration. Mitchell's parents and the two Roman Catholic priests were ultimately found guilty of negligent homicide and were sentenced to six months in jail. They were also ordered to pay a fine. Now, the reason this may sound super familiar is because of the film The Exorcism of Emily Rose, which came out in 2005, and it is based on her story, although it's a little more updated. Now, one of the most fascinating things about this entire situation, this entire case, is that there are recordings. I've listened to portions of them. I haven't listened to them all. But from what I've heard, they're very disturbing. And I'm going to play for you those recordings right now. Now make of that what you will. They sound very authentic to me, and they are very, very disturbing. But does that show evidence of an actual exorcism or just a very disturbed young girl with a lot of mental disorders and a lot of things going on inside of her head? It's well documented that she was very unhealthy, and she'd been suffering from mental illness for many, many years. The fact that later on, during the exorcisms, she refused to eat and was not given food or water, apparently, during these exorcisms can send people into sort of a tizzy, to put it nicely. Given all of the events that occurred during the exorcism, her background, her mental illness, it's not too far of a stretch to assume that she had a mental break. Your body does weird things when it's deprived of water and food, and, and though she didn't sound like herself, that isn't totally unheard of. I mean, people are voice actors after all. They can change their voice drastically. Look how many voices Dan Castellanata does on The Simpsons or Hank Azaria. They all have different voices, and they all have different pitches, different tones, and they're able to mask how they sound. Now, was Annalise a professional voice actor? No. 
but it just goes to show what the human body and human vocal cords specifically are capable of when put under different stresses and strains. And that, again, goes hand-in-hand hand with her mental illnesses. Perhaps she had personality disorder. Perhaps the voices inside of her head from the schizophrenia suggested that she speak a certain way. Or maybe she was somebody else completely in her own mind, which would in turn could, I'm not a psychiatrist or a psychologist, but could potentially lend her to creating a new voice for the new person within her who may not necessarily be a demon. When it comes to the matter-of-fact statements on these topics, I can't adhere to either side. I have no proof either way that possession is real, or that possession is fake, or that it's just strictly mental illness. I have to go at it from a skeptical side and suggest that these are people with mental disorders or a very firm belief that they are possessed, or that they have a very firm belief in the Catholic or religious system of whatever the religion is. It has been shown that religious affinity, prayer, sermons, church going, all that sort of stuff, plays certain roles in our brain. Certain aspects of our brain fire, certain sections go off like mad. When we're in prayer or meditation, when you truly believe that you are in a certain state of mind, it's all about belief, and the power of suggestion is incredibly real. So that's my take and a little bit of history on exorcisms and possession. So, until next week.